We've been talking all week about the digital divide and how millions of Americans still can't get proper high-speed internet. One potential solution is 5G, a new wireless technology that comes with a lot of hype. But how realistic is it? I'm Roger Shang, and this is your Daily Charge. With me are Alice Turnquist and Dean Brenner, two experts from Qualcomm here to talk about the digital divide and what we can do about it. Uh, Alice, Dean, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Roger. Great to be here. So, I mean, let's let's get into it. I, I spent the week talking about the the problems with the digital divide. You know, where it's really affecting us, places like uh, rural America, where there really are uh, limited choices when it comes to broadband, limited to no choices. So, you know, I want to talk a bit about the solutions. I also want to talk about some of the policy policy changes that need to happen for those solutions to take place. But, but obviously. Qualcomm is a big backer of 5G, so let's let's start with that and, and talk a little bit about how 5G offers a potential solution, potential bridge to close the, the digital divide here in America. The digital divide is just a big, gigantic, complicated, multifaceted problem. It's so big that, in fact, there's no consensus on exactly how big of a problem it even is because we lack data. But we know that it's a problem that uh, impacts both connectivity and devices. It's a lack of both. If you have one without the other, you're still out of luck. We know that it's a problem, although it's true the the rural aspect is a particularly hard part of the problem. But we know it's a problem that's rural, suburban, and urban. It's not just in rural areas. We know it's the impact is particular for people with lower income. And we also know from data, it impacts people of color disproportionately. And, you know, when we started with 5G at Qualcomm, talking about it in the 2015, 2016 timeframe, most everyone we spoke to would say, uh, 5G, well, what is that going to do for me? Fast forward now to COVID-19, we don't have to say, we don't have to worry. No one's going to ask anything about that. If you just say to people, hey, Do you want better, faster connectivity, faster, better uploading and downloading, better video? I think the resounding answer is yes. Unfortunately, this terrible pandemic has taught us that the impact of connectivity and devices is now so pervasive across the country. So, you know, as 5G rolls out, hopefully as broadly and as quickly as possible, you know, Everyone is going to who has access and everyone who can afford it, I think, is going to want it. And so then we come down to the digital divide and really we have an economic problem and a technology problem. And there are things 5G can do to help with both of those. But this is a big, gigantic public policy problem. It requires massive federal dollars targeted the right way at both connectivity and devices to start chipping away. You know, the FCC says that the problem is getting a little bit better. As in the last report, they said 18 million instead of the prior report a few years back was 21 million. But of course, we know that the FCC themselves on a bipartisan basis says that their data is imperfect, that it, it, it's it got flaws. And so we actually really, really need on an accelerated basis, the data, and really, really need on an accelerated basis, the targeted federal investment to start chipping away at the problem. Right. And, and you refer to, and you were referring to those, the, the, the fact that those broadband maps aren't necessarily 
fully accurate. The data there is inconsistent. Um, just just for our listeners, for for additional context, the you know there there have been a lot of concerns about to your point the the data being collected and whether or not it's really accurate. There are instances where in whole zip codes are accounted for as 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 having broadband, even if that means one house in that zip code has access. Yeah, it's whole census blocks. A census there are fifty five thousand census blocks in the United States. So there, a census block can be you know quite a large area uh, in terms of uh, territory or land, and if one person is reported as receiving broadband as defined by the FCC, and that's a whole nother problem. But if one person gets broadband within a census block, then the entire census block gets counted. And also there are issues because uh, a lot of the data is submitted by the carriers, by uh, wireline and wireless, and there's you know problems with the, the data submissions themselves. Again, everything that I'm saying is on a bipartisan basis. And I think there's a bipartisan consensus among policymakers because the other thing about the digital divide, Roger, is it's it exists in a, a disturbing um, to a disturbing magnitude in all 50 states. There isn't like, you know, uh, 10 states that don't have this problem. And as I say, it's not like it's just a rural problem. It's an urban, suburban rural problem. The data that we do have various uh, from various sources all confirms that. So let me let me kind of get into this, though, because, you know, especially when we're, we're talking about 5G and Alice, feel free to jump in. Um, you know, and you brought the point about, you know, when this technology becomes available um, and folks who can afford it. And I think that's the key point there is, you know, at least initially 5G has been built as a premium service. It, it definitely costs more. You have to be in the higher end of uh, service plans, you have to spend more on phones. Uh, at what point does 5G become part of the solution in bridging the digital divide? Because as it is rolled out early on, just like every other new technology gets rolled out, it's really more for folks who can afford it, and that's not necessarily the folks who would be helped by uh, or who would need it, who are suffering from the digital divide. So, you know, whenever we do start a new G, I guess this is for me, I was involved in 2G, 3G, 4G, and now 5G. Whenever we start a new one, I, you know, we start with a higher end as, you know, in terms of the cost, and then things move down from there. And, but the good news about 5G is the 5G rollout is happening at warp speed compared to the 4G rollout. We have many, many more 5G devices at this early stage than we had at the same stage in 4G. Uh, we have the national and regional wireless operators in the United States in particular are rolling out 5G absolutely as quickly and as broadly as possible on their end. So in terms of mobile, the cost of 5G devices is going to quickly migrate down to the, you know, so that it won't just be a premium service. That, that's one aspect to your question. And then the other aspect, Roger, is, you know, a big part of the digital divide is people not uh, not even having any connectivity within their home. So we know it's a home broadband problem, right? So for people who live in rural areas, we have this terrible economic technology problem that if they, you know, it's, it's covering the last mile. So, you know, in most rural areas, there's coverage, you know, within a road, within a, on a highway to in population centers, but usually it's that last mile that's the 
most costly, difficult part to, to get covered. And, and, you know, the laws of economics and physics typically mean that, that that's the area. Those are the areas that don't get covered today. So for 5G, it supports fixed wireless access. So we're not talking about, you know, my mobile phone. We're talking about an antenna that would be attached to your house. You know, we have this millimeter wave spectrum in 5G, where 5G, one of the key areas of spectrum where it's being rolled out. And the nice thing with millimeter wave, it's very, very cheap. And it's a lot of spectrum. The reason why it's so cheap is because usually a cell site for mobile coverage, it can only cover a range of, say, four or 500 meters, not like a big cellular tower in the low bands where the, the cell tower can give you coverage for miles. But what we did at Qualcomm, working in the 3GPP standards group and working with more than 30 equipment manufacturers, is we developed a special antenna module that we call Enhanced Millimeter Wave. So for fixed wireless, we can actually cover a mile or even more. So that means that that last mile problem could, for the first time, be covered very economically. So it we can get coverage up for 5G to folks in their houses in rural areas in a, using a 5G technology that's never been available in the prior generations of wireless. Yeah, that that's a good point. I want you bring up because I, that's what I wanted to ask really because 4G. You know, we've invested in 4G for for a decade, and you know there were a lot of promises about that, but it was never used as a solution to uh, to offer folks broadband when when they couldn't get it. Um, you're saying that with the particular properties of millimeter wave, you can't. It, that, it's, it's an interesting point you make because, you know, the knock on millimeter wave has been the fact that the range is fairly short. I mean, you look at the deployments that Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile have made, they're all fairly short range. They're basically glorified hotspots. So it's hard for me to kind of conceptualize how such short range, such technology that's being used in a short range basis now can be used to propagate across, you know, huge parts of land where where the population isn't as dense, where the the return on investment on invest, investing in infrastructure in this area is is questionable or has been questionable in the past. First of all, we know that with five G, you get this highly directionalized signal. This the the you transmit and receive in these very narrow directional beams. So it's one thing if I'm trying to provide mobile coverage, but in for fixed, if I know exactly where your house is, so I can now just very uh, transmit in a highly directionalized manner in a very narrow beam, and using the three GPP standards, I can you know increase the transmit power to the level that's allowed for fixed. Uh, which is much higher than what would be allowed if I was trying to provide mobile coverage. And again, using these antenna modules that provide this just, you know, tremendous uh, quality of service, we actually are able to do it. So it's uh, it's something that you'll see hitting the market, you know, soon in the next within a matter of uh, weeks and months. And, you know, we've had we've been working on it and we're very excited about it. Are the are the big carriers like Verizon and, and T-Mobile and AT&T looking at this? Because obviously we've seen Verizon's home broadband service. Uh, it's in a few markets right now. It's fairly limited. The deployment has been really slow. And T-Mobile's talked about it, but we haven't actually seen any deployment. So it's surprising that you're saying that 
we're going to see announcements about this in the coming weeks and months. And it, it, it seems to me, at least from the home broadband side of things, uh, the momentum has been relatively slow. Yeah, and I think, though, in fairness, they haven't been targeting it as a rural broadband. Exactly. It's definitely right now, it's it's for urban centers, it's for markets where, back to my original point, that folks who can afford it can can you know sign for the service. It's, it's not exactly a solution for those rural areas where connectivity is an issue. Look, if there were a pill, you know, if it was like, hey, just take remdesivir and all of a sudden the digital divide would be solved, you know, I would be advocating that. Enhanced millimeter wave is one you know, new technology that we think offers a lot of promise for the toolkit. Um, it, but, you know, it's, uh, as I say, and Alice has been working on this as long as I have, I mean, it's a big, complicated, multifaceted, economic, technical, public policy problem that requires massive, you know, federal investment. Alice, do you want to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I would just add that, you know, we, as a company and in uh, and, and the work that Dean and I do here as advocates in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, our messaging has been it really it needs to be resolved with federal funding. One of the areas we've been very engaged in recently as a result of COVID is a, a, an aspect of the digital divide is what's been called the homework gap. But the fact that students have been, uh, you know, sent home 50 million students sent home and estimates are you know 15 to 16 million of them lack adequate devices or connectivity and that requires you know federal attention federal funding um, there has been some provided already but um, we've been making the case that more needs to be provided and a dedicated fund to address that um, it's not even adequate to say it's a homework gap now because it's really the primary way that students are learning and so it you know, can't wait for a technological solution to arrive in someone's community or um, you know, just being able to, to buy a device if there aren't adequate resources for that. It really requires federal attention to that. And when you talk about federal funding, like where, where would that funding go to? Would it go to infrastructure equipment providers? Would it go to the carriers? Would it go to, cons like, to consumers or residents? Like, where would that funding go? So the funding that Alice is talking about for education, it, it needs to go to the schools, right? So we have a program called E-Rate, a federal program called E-Rate. It was uh, enacted by Congress in the 1990s as part of the Telecom Act of 1996. And it enables schools to buy certain telecom equipment at a discounted rate. So back when the internet first you know, became popular, Folks realize that, oh, my God, schools aren't wired for the Internet. We, you know, how are we going to afford to do this, especially in schools that, uh, you know, that are in low income areas? So Congress did a great job of addressing that problem. So we have a federal program administered by the FCC that ensures that the schools themselves are wired. But there are two problems with the program, two shortcomings. One it only covers connectivity on school grounds, so it doesn't do anything for any of the millions of kids. And actually, by the way, some teachers who don't have connectivity today and, the, the, and just are shut out of remote learning. And then the other thing is it doesn't cover devices. So what we, you know, we just want to see this terrible problem solve of, you know, millions and millions of kids you know, there needs to be funding to cover both connectivity uh, away from school 
and devices for kids so that kids aren't shut out of learning. By the way, on the device part of it, every kid needs a device. You know, in a, in a family, there are, you know, even if it's one laptop in a household with five people, you know, two of whom are, you know, one of whom has got uh, a job and then the others are trying to do schoolwork. I mean, it's just a, it's just really a, um, a crisis. So, you know, the best way to do this is to get um, a dedicated pool of money. Uh, it could be administered through the E-rate program just because that's a, a program that's up and running there. Every state has an E-rate coordinator. Most, most schools in low income areas uh, get E-rate money. They're very familiar with it. Or it could be done through some other program, but we need to solve this problem uh, to, to stem this just terrible education crisis that the country's having. Right. Now, I wanted to go back, sir, to the, the, the millimeter wave, the enhanced millimeter wave uh, solution you talked about. You know, a lot of that's going to require a spectrum. The carriers aren't necessarily, don't have all that spectrum. Um, and I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on you know, where we are with carriers and with, with the state of their spectrum holdings and, and what the government can do to, to free up more radio airways. Just for our listeners, for a bit of context, spectrum, those are the, the radio frequency, the airwaves that are basically the lifeblood of the industry. They're used to ferry data, email, YouTube videos over the air from your phone to nearby cell towers. Um, but what, where are we in terms of the, uh, the state of spectrum in America? There is a consensus uh, in the United States among policymakers that in order for 5G to reach its potential of, you know, this tremendous multi-gigabit, uh, ultra-low latency, ultra-reliable communication, that the carriers are going to need low, mid, and high band spectrum. So the FCC in 2016, uh, when they issued their first ruling on spectrum for 5G, that consensus emerged among the five commissioners, even though they're of two different political parties. And now, actually, if you go around the world, it doesn't matter whether you're in China or Europe or Latin America, anywhere in the world, there is basically a global consensus among regulators that for 5G, there is a need for low, mid and high band spectrum. In the United States, the first spectrum that was made available for 5G specifically was in 2016, and that concentrated on uh, high band spectrum. And the United States has done a great job of getting a lot of high band spectrum, making a lot of high band spectrum available to the carriers. The FCC had its largest auction ever just before the pandemic started of this millimeter wave high band spectrum. And the virtue of that kind of spectrum is there's a lot of it. So you get the super fast data rates. Now, the FCC has also made available low and mid band spectrum. Uh, in the low spectrum, that's what the 600 megahertz spectrum was all about. The virtue there is you get the wide coverage, but there's a lot less spectrum. So you can't get the same super fast data rate. So then the sweet spot maybe that balances between the virtues of both high and low band spectrum would be mid band spectrum. In the United States, that's what the CBRS band, Citizens Broadband Radio Service Band is about. That's also the spectrum where T-Mobile, after they acquired Sprint, is concentrating on in the 2.5 gigahertz band. But there's also a consensus in the 
U.S. public policy arena that we need more mid-band spectrum. Other countries actually focus more on this mid-band spectrum than they did on high band. And so the United States is trying to make more progress in the mid-band. So what we're doing with that in the United States is two things, actually more than two, but the two most immediate are we're having the auction of the CBRS band and then the FCC issued a very complicated decision again uh, a few months ago for more spectrum in the 3.7 to 4 gigahertz range. This is another important mid-band. That spectrum is going to be auctioned if the timetable is followed. That will be auctioned at the end of 2020, and the first spectrum there will become available in 2021 to be actually used. And then the toughest part of spectrum is there's kind of no free lunch. Whenever you're trying to get spectrum for 5G, you have to take it away in effect from someone or it's being uh, there's no spectrum that's just, you know, a vacant lot. There's spectrum that's been allocated for someone and there's always a reason for that allocation. So below the CBRS, so we're talking from 3.1 to 3.5, that spectrum that's primarily used and allocated for the Defense Department. And now there are uh, um, big efforts underway to try to make some of that spectrum available to kind of fill the void that we have in the United States in this mid-band. I would just add to that great explanation is there, there's also a view that there's a role for unlicensed spectrum as part of the 5G ecosystem and that the FCC you know, recently made six gigahertz spectrum available, 1200 megahertz in the six gigahertz band. And just for, just for our folks who don't quite understand what that means. What what exactly is unlicensed spectrum and, and how does it play alongside sort of traditional licensed spectrum? Well, so unlicensed licensed spectrum is subject to auction as Dean described. Their FCC holds these massive multi-billion dollar auctions and uh, companies compete and bid in the auction to purchase spectrum. In unlicensed spectrum, it's, it's made available uh, at no cost to any sort of private entity, but the, the trade-off is the people who use the spectrum have to abide by the rules that the FCC establishes, uh, which generally uh, amounts to operating at much lower power. And so um, signals don't travel as far, so it's used for you know, Wi-Fi, those types of technologies, but um, they will continue to play an important role and um, within 5G, you know, if, you, if you're on a 5G connection and you're outdoors and then you go in to use Wi-Fi and you have this massive slowdown, that's not going to be a great experience for people. So the 6 gigahertz band that's been made available is going to be used for Wi-Fi 6, uh, the, the most recent version of Wi-Fi, which will help address that problem. Gotcha. Uh, and then just circling back, this is my last question, in, in terms of investment in, in rural America, in, in parts of the country where historically it's been deemed inex, uh, too expensive or the it just hasn't been worth it because the population isn't dense enough, uh, what changes here with, with 5G? Because you still have to put up base stations, you still have to put up radios, there's still equipment and investment that's required. And, it may, and, and Spectrum's expensive, right? It's uh, right now, it's something that's dominated by a lot of larger carriers, but in, in these parts of the country, it's really rural carriers or regional carriers that bear a lot of this burden. So how, how do you see all that coming together in, in terms of this being actually practically affordable for smaller companies to actually roll out in a way? Is it federal funding? Is it something else? Is, does the technology offer a solution inherently? 
What do you sort of see that going? Yeah, so I think it's uh, all the things you mentioned. Without a doubt, it is federal funding. We need federal funding to make sure that um, the areas where it's not economic to provide the connectivity today, that they get the connectivity. And that's, again, that's a 50-state you know, problem. There are pockets of the country where it isn't economic without some kind of federal aid. So the challenge is identifying exactly where those areas are as quickly as possible and targeting the federal aid to the, through a reverse auction process that the FCC is going to run, you know, making sure the money goes out the door absolutely as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible to the folks that will provide the uh, build out, you know, quickly. So it, you know, look, if it was easy to solve this problem, it would already be solved. There's no rural area that's so rural that it doesn't have some population centers. So these anchor institutions, they're typically called hospitals, schools, libraries, uh, community centers, healthcare facilities. There is tremendous need for great connectivity in rural areas at those kinds of facilities. And I think that has been the focus of, um, of attention in prior federal broadband programs. And I think that you know continues to be a focus. I'd like to say one more thing though, Roger. In the history of efforts to solve the digital divide, one thing that folks have always told us is it's true that uh, some people don't have service. It's true that it costs too much, but you know there are people who just don't think broadband is relevant to their lives. That you know they don't see a reason why they need connectivity. And I would really like to believe that with COVID, that's over, that everyone in the country now understands how important connectivity is. Everyone knows that they need it for, for their kids, for education. They need it to interact for healthcare with doctors. They need it to interact with the government for you know all kinds of assistance. If they have to file an unemployment claim, they need it. Everyone now hopefully appreciates that you need connectivity to engage in basically every facet of American life in the 21st century. All right, and Alice, I'll, I'll give you the last word. Just given that the things we discussed, it seems like this is not a problem that's going to be solved overnight, clearly, um, between allocating spectrum, between getting some of this equipment actually installed. Being as optimistic as you can, I mean, when do you sort of see some of these issues being addressed, uh, whether it's from a, a regulatory perspective, from, a, from an auction perspective, or from a deployment perspective? Well, I think in some ways they're being, you know, they are being addressed now. Uh, you know, as Dean described at the beginning of this um, podcast, great progress has been made on 5G already. Um, it's incredible what the FCC has already done in providing millimeter wave spectrum. Um, and what the carriers have been doing in building out their networks. Um, to address this piece about the digital divide, it's not going to be just uh, private sector innovation and commitment. It, it also does require a role for the government. And that's been true throughout history. With railroads, we never would have gotten to the golden spike if uh, Abraham Lincoln hadn't made it a priority. With electricity, Lyndon Johnson made it a priority. Uh, for rural areas to have electricity would not have happened otherwise. So um, to ultimately, you know, complete and include everybody in the 21st century of digital economy and digital learning, it really does require a federal role. Thank you, Dean and Alice, for your time. That concludes part five of our series, Looking at the Digital Divide. 
Stay tuned tomorrow for the final part of our series where I talk to infrastructure provider Comscope on what else needs to be done to close the gap. For The Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening.